Our Father, so many of us, by matchless sovereign grace, have come to see Jesus as altogether fair. That the Lord Jesus is fairer than ten thousands. He is the one who, because of what he lived and the way that he died, he has permitted and made possible sinners such as I to be reconciled to God and to live eternally because the righteousness that God demanded, Jesus provided. And we, by faith, have laid hold of Christ, who is our only righteousness. And having done so, we see him as altogether lovely. And I pray, Father, that the hearts of your people today might be warmed not only by watching the, the, their children sing, which is such a sweet blessing that you've granted us. But might they be warmed as they remember Jesus Christ and what he has done in their lives as well as their families. Oh God, we have many reasons to worship you. But one such reason, of course, is our families. So many here enjoy sweet and and unified marriages and homes. And I pray, O oh God, that you will enhance what they now enjoy. There are others here, Father, who cannot say that, who have discovered that there's real bumps in the road and real obstacles in their marriage and family. And I pray that as, a, as, a, as an out, as a result of our worship together, that there might be determinations on many's part to, to make sure that the obstacles are being removed, that the barriers are being broken down, that the, uh, the crevices are being filled up so that there can be sweetness reestablished in the home. Father, I pray for those who've never married and pray that you will give them the desire of their heart, whatever that might be, that you will grant them a sense of your safekeeping concerning their future. Father, we now want to give in similar manner to the way that we have received. Father, we have received freely. We want to, re we want to give freely, gladly, cheerfully, in a small response to the way our God has worked with us. Might our giving reflect our great gratitude and our great love for the triune God. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If you will, and open them to the book of Judges, chapter 7. While you're finding that, I want to mention that that little choir that you just saw, who is directed by Donna Bird, um, is going to be taught a um, song in Ukrainian by our own Taras Maranuk. So if you, your children are not involved in that choir, I, um, this is a great time to begin uh, as our own representative from Ukraine um, will be teaching a Ukrainian song to them. I want you to follow now as I read, beginning at verse 9, we'll read through the close of that chapter. So at Judges chapter 7, verse 9. Follow as I read. <clears throat> it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, 
that is Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edges of the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and Gideon of Gideon. So Gideon and the three hundred and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon! And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the three hundred blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companions throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Bethacacia, toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from them the watering places as far as Bethbarah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Bethbarah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of our God. It endures forever. We come this morning in our study of the life of Gideon to that which is really the climactic section of his whole life. The story of Gideon covers three chapters, chapters 6, 7, and 8, but here is the climax. Here is the apex of Gideon's life story. There's some anticlimactic things that we'll see in chapter 8, but this is the apex. This is the event that so many people know at least a little about when it comes to Gideon. Um, it has certainly taken us a while to get to this apex of his life, but we're finally there. And what we find is 
that uh, over the course of our study that Gideon has already witnessed three miraculous signs uh, in chapter 6, verse 21, chapter 6, verse 38, and chapter 6, verse 40. There have already been three miraculous things that have happened in the life of Gideon. Yet uh, at this point, at this uh, point in the life of Gideon, we uh, find that his army has been reduced by 99%, and we find him still in the position of not being what you would call uh, strong in faith. This is no um, uh, hero of the faith at this point. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's interesting, is it not, that only the Bible, uh, when it records stories about its heroes, also tells us about the flaws of the heroes. Uh, and so you see, Gideon, yeah, he, um, he's in charge of the army, but he's still a long ways away from some kind of swashbuckling faith. No, no, he's still weak-kneed. And God, knowing that, um, gives him one other opportunity. He provides one more piece of miraculous support to kind of shore up this poor flagging faith of Gideon's. Uh, God condescends in this event one more time and tells Gideon in verse 10, um, if, you are, uh, if you are afraid, um, well, go down. So he says, uh, I want you to go on down to the Midian's camp, take a servant with you, because uh, you're going to need a witness, uh, knowing you, Gideon, uh, and take them down. And you're going to hear some things down there that, uh, were, that are really going to encourage you. So Gideon, um, knowing that there is no if, that is, verse 10 says, if you are afraid, and his response is, well, of course I'm afraid. Yes, I'm afraid. You got me one more opportunity? Okay, let me take that one. So he grabs a hold of Pura, and he heads down uh, inside or behind enemy lines. And um, I have to say that his first impression is not, certain, not a very encouraging one. It's recorded in verse 12. Uh, they were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. He's up against one enormous army, and this army is equipped with the most sophisticated of uh, then-current weaponry. Camels. Camels are bad news. That's, that's the first thing that he sees and the first impression made. And then we're told in verse 13 that there uh, is a, a Midianite, and Gideon happens to be in earshot of this Midianite, but there's one of the enemy's soldiers that has just awakened from a very fearful, uh, very alarming dream. And he tells his dream to his companion about this loaf of barley bread that has rolled into the camp, hit a tent, and crushed the whole thing. Now, now, can I stick this in your brain just real quickly? But barley was a staple of the extremely poor. Um, Barley was the stuff that you fed to the cattle. You fed it to beggars and lepers. It was kind of a crude and humble food. Keep that in mind, because there's some application to that in a minute. But here we get this wonderful picture of a loaf of barley bread that underscores just how insignificant Gideon is in this whole process, which Gideon doesn't miss. That is, he doesn't miss the point. Um, He would have been the first to admit that, indeed, uh, barley is all that I am. And so having heard the dream and the interpretation of the dream, we're told in verse 15, after all that he hears, Gideon worships. 
He worships right there in the camp of the Midianites. Uh, and at this point, ladies and gentlemen, Gideon is a new man. Uh, he, he is finally ready. Fear, doubt, that's all gone now. And he heads back to his camp of the Israelites with kind of a, a divine spring in his step. And, and I want you to notice what he says to his troops when he, when he finally gets back there in verse 15. Um, he says, Arise, to his troops, he says, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. There's no more, there's no more doubt in his mind now. Finally, <clears throat> finally, after three miracles and a prophetic dream, Gideon has finally got the courage to go against Midian. Um, but he assures his troops that there will be a rout, but the rout will not be of their doing. It will be of God's doing. So the strategy that he uses is, um, is mentioned there. It is, it is one that seems to be quite famous. What he does is um, he gives them a pitcher, a trumpet, and inside the pitcher is a, is a, a torch. And so he divides his... His enormous army of 300 into three platoons or squads or whatever. And they encircle the camp. And he says, you do what you see me do. And uh, as you know, the first thing they do is they break the pitchers. And um, it, it, it takes place, uh, according to verse 19, in the middle watch, would be, which would be about 10 p.m., um, they actually, I'm wrong. They, the first thing they do is they blow the trumpets. The trumpets are blown, and they, uh, which of course, awakens all of these guys from a deep sleep. And then they break the jugs, the jars, and making all this racket, which arouses these Midianite soldiers to think that the battle has begun. And um, apparently, fear grips the hearts of these Midianite soldiers. And they grab their weapons, and in the midst of darkness, they begin to swing at anything that moves. The torches uh, are now visible, which provide kind of an eerie backdrop to this whole piece of mayhem. And then in verse 21, we are told that the whole army of the Midianites ran and cried out and fled. And God sends on them some kind of spirit of panic and confusion, which is something that he's used on numerous occasions. He used this before. He used it in 2 Kings 7 uh, to defeat an, an Assyrian army. But the, the result is utter pandemonium, panic on the part of the Midianite army. I read a story once um, about the ministry of Charles Spurgeon, which is the name that I, I hope is familiar to many of you. Charles Spurgeon was the, probably the, what we consider to be the prince of the pulpit, the, uh, the greatest preacher that at least I think ever lived. But um, his audience began to expand at such an enormous rate. Uh, he he uh, preached in the middle 1800s in London. And so they built him a new um, place to preach. It was called the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle. And um, uh, he moved his congregation. And I, I, as I remember... Uh, it sat about 7,000, which in the 1850s, you can imagine what a, uh, an oddity that was. But uh, soon after the congregation moved into this new um, sanctuary, uh, it was packed on a Sunday afternoon, uh, people lining the walls, and there were no fire codes back then. But 
uh, people lining the walls, every seat taken. And somebody, uh, which Spurgeon believed till his death, uh, was planted there and did it on purpose, uh, cried out in the midst of the service, Fire! Fire! And it produced such panic on the part of the congregants that as people fled to get out of the room, seven people were killed, uh, were stampeded and killed at a Sunday morning worship service. I don't think we're going to have that problem here. Um, but uh, Spurgeon went into such depression that the headlines in the, uh, the Sunday paper announced, Will he ever preach again? But, but the point is, it's the same kind of panic, the same kind of pandemonium that has erupted in the army of the Midianites um, to the point that they turn on each other. And they're all described as running and crying and fleeing. Now, there's something that I, I, I don't want you to miss about the text. It's in verse 21. I don't want you to miss this because we're told, and every man, that is, every man in Gideon's army stood in his place all around the camp. It's very important that you notice, ladies and gentlemen, that the army, those, that army of 300 fools stood in one place. They were stationary. They never swung a sword and were not even told that they had one. They had a torch and they had a pitcher and they had a trumpet, which is not exactly what you'd call weaponry. But this army stands in one place. They never budge while this pandemonium erupts. That's hardly the, the posture of a gallant soldier. But it is the posture of a gallant soldier if they understood that God was going to do their fighting for them. So the whole army turns on itself. They begin to um, uh, run and flee and kill each other. And, and then we're told at the close of the story that Gideon uh, sends out a call to the rest of Israel to join the battle because the rout is on. And so Gideon or the rest of Israel joins the battle and uh, the, they involve themselves in kind of what is the mop-up operation. Now, that's the story. What I want to close, or what I want to do as we close, is that I want to try to draw some lessons for us out of the story. Something that um, I, I hope uh, adequately speaks to the issues that some of you or perhaps all of you face. We'll see at least. There are five things that I want to draw in terms of lessons. The first one. This verse 10, when, um, when God says to Gideon, If you are afraid. Well, of course I'm afraid. <laughs> and uh, darn tootin' I'm afraid. This is no uh, John Wayne that we got, our, got here. This is Gideon. What do you mean am I afraid? Of course I'm afraid. And my point simply is, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think he's the only one. Um, I'm not here this morning to promote fear. But I am here to say to God's people... That from time to time, there are circumstances in our lives that produce fear. I don't know whether you've ever seen this before, 
But I'd like for you, don't, don't turn, because it, I'm going to run through these rather hurriedly. I want to read you just three statements that David, the psalmist, makes. My first one is found in Psalm 31, verse 13, where David says, I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. That's David saying in the midst of uh, a particular time in his life, there was a lot of slander about him going on. And he defined his, his position as having fear encircling him. He states also in Psalm 34, uh, verse 4, he said, I sought the Lord, and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. He um, makes another statement in Psalm 56. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in the Lord. And he's not the only one that mentions this. Jeremiah mentions it in the book of Lamentations. Again, I say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not here to promote fear. But I am here to tell you that fear is a normal part of a Christian's existence from time to time. I just uh, listened to a tape uh, oh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think many of you have listened to it. It's the testimony of a man whose name is Gerald Sitzer. And Gerald Sitzer, and I think it was like 13 years ago. It could have been longer. It could have been 17 years ago, but it was a long time ago. Gerald Sitzer was driving with his family on a uh, road someplace. I think it was in Washington, uh, the state of Washington or Oregon. Anyway, and a um, two-lane road and a drunk pulled into his lane. And as a result of that accident, his wife was killed, his mother was killed, and one of his daughters were killed. And two of his children and himself and, and, and Gerald survived the accident. And, of course, you can, you can imagine what going through that was like. Or at least you can imagine a little bit about what it was like. But at uh, one point in his testimony, he said this. He said, I had this recurring dream. And the dream was that the sun was setting. And because I was so afraid of the darkness, I, kept, I found myself running in the dream running towards the sun setting. I kept running and running and running and running because I didn't want to be in the darkness. I was so afraid of the darkness, I kept running towards the sun so that it wouldn't go down. And, and on, in that midst of all that, he, um, he called his sister. And his sister said to him, Jerry... What I think you ought to do is turn around. I think you ought to head back into the darkness. I think you need to face your fear. And once you've gone through the darkness, you'll find the sun has risen. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's some powerful advice for us. I'm not here to promote fear. But I am here to say, fear doesn't necessarily mean unbelief. No, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Doubts, fears, they're not good. But they're not unbelief either. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're some kind of weak, need believer or son of God. No. Every Christian is going to face circumstances that will produce fear. Gideon did, David did, Jeremiah did. 
And it's a question of facing and running through them and finding light at the other end. Some of you may have lost sleep last night because you're afraid. A single who's afraid that they'll never find a spouse. A man or a woman who is afraid that they just found a doctor's report that is going to take their life. A person who's discovered that his business is going south and he's going to be out of a job soon. And that'll make your palms sweat. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're an unbeliever. It means that you're in circumstances that have produced fear. It's not good, but it's not unbelief either. The second thing that I, I want you to see about our story this morning, which I, which I hope will be an applicable um, lesson, is recorded for us in verse 9, where, um, where God first says, Arise, um, it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Do you see any sense of contradiction in that text? Because there is one there. <laughs> The, uh, the contradiction is, all right, get up, take your army, go down there, and you're going to have to fight a battle. But they're already, the, the victory's already won. I already delivered them in your, into your hands. But get up, go on down there, and fight it. Here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. There, are, uh, there is a sense which the victory is already ensured. But that doesn't mean we don't have to fight the battle even knowing that the victory is assured. There is a story in uh, Acts chapter 27 that I find absolutely, almost hilarious. Uh, in Acts chapter 27, um, Paul's taking, or telling these guys, uh, they're in a storm and they're about to all die. And, you know, Paul comes, steps forward and he says, um, you know, um, you're all going to be safe. God's going to deliver us all. It's all going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And, and let me just read it to you. Um, Oh, I'll say, uh, beginning at verse 22, you're not there, but Acts 27 at 22. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong, uh, whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God, I believe God that it will be just as we were told. However, <laughs> we must run aground on a certain island. Oh, it's all going to be fine, but there's going to be a shipwreck. <laughs> uh, everybody's going to be delivered, but we're going to run aground. Everything's fine, but you're going to have to go through absolute hell to get there. Oh, the battle is won, but get up and go fight it. You know, guys, um, Vance Havner said once that faith sees the invisible victory in a battle not yet fought. Faith sees an invisible victory in a battle that hasn't yet been fought. You've got to go fight it. I'm sorry, my dear brother and sister. We're going to go fight it. But we've also read the last chapter of this book. And the good guys win. But there'll still be a battle and there'll still be an island to shipwreck on. I don't know whether that encourages you. But guys... Um, being a Christian didn't mean there wasn't going to be a battle. didn't mean that at all. It just means that in the end, all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. That's my second uh, application. Let me give you a third one. Um, 
I entitled this sermon, 300 Fools. Because 300 fools are going to take a trumpet, a torch, and a pitcher and go fight 120,000 Midianites. What a bunch of idiots. And yet, guys, um, I want to suggest to you that a man's usefulness to God, that is a usefulness in the kingdom, is directly proportional to his willingness to be counted of little consequence in his own ability and estimation. Did you get that? Your usefulness to God is directly proportional to your willingness to be counted a fool for Jesus' sake. Barley? You bet I'm barley. <laughs> and that's all I am is barley. I'm not cracked wheat. I'm not rye. I'm barley. And I take great joy in being barley. You know, guys, um, there is a sense in which if you're a Christian today, you've become a fool. I don't know that you've noticed it yet, but we believe some pretty radical stuff. <laughs> you know that? We believe in a virgin birth. Everybody here know how people get born? Well, we believe in a virgin birth. You know what else we believe? We believe in a resurrection from the dead. Anybody seen anybody come out of a tomb? Out of a casket? We believe in resurrection. We believe in some pretty unusual stuff. And uh, to tell them out there what we believe, we look like a bunch of fools. Who deluded you people? <laughs> you fool. You know, because we're so afraid of rejection, because we so despise rejection, we're so unwilling to talk about this Jesus we love very much in the public forum. And I'm saying to you, your usefulness to the kingdom is pretty much directly proportional to your willingness to be seen as a fool. That's what these guys did, and they were used mightily. And uh, if we're ever going to be used, we've got to get over this sense of fear. That people are going to look at us as fools. We are. I have another, I have two more applications. But one of them really turns my crank. And I'm going to do something a little bit different here that, um, that we've not done ever before. Because one of the things that really stands out to me about this story that I absolutely love about the story in the life of Gideon is the great change that has taken place in the life of Gideon from being this guy over here in chapter 6 to this mighty general in chapter 7. I love that, ladies and gentlemen. I love the fact that one of the beauties of the gospel is that it will change us. It can change us into different people. Now, in the life of Gideon, it took a little while. Yes. And you know what? It's taken a little while in you, too. But the beauty of the gospel is that it changes us. You know, he took a guy by the name of Saul who was a Christ-hating, man-killing, pompous Pharisee. And he turned him into Paul, the greatest evangelist ever lived. He took Peter and turned Peter into this frightened little puppy dog and turned him into something that was the very rock of the church. Don't, don't turn here, but let me, let me read you this. I, I love this statement by Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 42, because he's talking to the guys that are going to follow him. And he says in 142, he says this. 
Um, now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. This is what you are. But this is what I'm about to make you. You used to be that. But because of the glories of the gospel, you're not going to be that anymore. It, one of the beauties of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is how marvelously He transforms us. I want you to meet a man. Because, ladies and gentlemen, He hasn't simply transformed Gideon. He's transformed a lot of us, hasn't He? This is my friend Ed Katu. I never tire of telling this story about Ed. He tires of me, hearing me tell it. But you've never heard it, or some of you haven't heard it, so I've got to tell you. Forgive me. Um, if you're a Republican, you might remember a guy by the name of Ronald Reagan. Let's all have a moment of silence for it. <laughs> you remember Ronald Reagan. Do you remember in his presidency that uh, Ronald Reagan was discovered to have cancer, colon cancer? It was this man who found it. Isn't that interesting? It is a gastroenterologist, and I think that's right what I said. And I want you to meet him. Not because I want you to meet Ed, but because I want you to hear of changes that the gospel makes. Ed, how long have you been a Christian? Just a little over two years, Jimmy. A little over two years. And tell these folks about how that came about. Well, Jimmy, I was... Uh raised in a, a very moralistic family, and although my folks didn't go to church regularly, they sent me to Sunday school and church from when I was very little. And what I was taught at home was hard work and discipline, honesty and integrity, humility and independence. Uh, my dad was an enlisted guy in the Navy, and one of the things he taught us was that every man was the captain of his own ship and in charge of his own destiny. And for most of my life, I lived believing just that. And in my professional world as a, as a doc, uh, I pretty much set the goals that I had for myself as an academic physician. Uh, in my secular world of relativism, I looked around and, you know, I wasn't cheating on my wife, wasn't cheating on my taxes. Uh, if you'd asked me, I would have told you that I was a Christian. And I was generally pretty content with myself. Uh, and then in 1979, or 1989 rather, I hit really my first rough seas. Uh, my dad, who was then 59 years old, developed lung cancer, and he had a very long and painful illness. And as a physician, I think it was even more difficult for me, because even though there were no surprises medically, um, here was a man who was very strong and independent, and I had to watch him lose absolute control of everything, and I was absolutely powerless to help him, uh, even medically, and that was something that I was supposed to be good at doing. But I couldn't even help him emotionally. The last three months of his life, uh, we converted our dining room into a hospital room. And my mother, who's a nurse, and my wife, Sue, is a nurse. And they, with the help of the hospice folks, cared for him. And all I did was uh, work harder and stay at the hospital longer. And then when he died in late 89 is when I started asking all the questions about what am I doing wrong? What should I be doing with my life? And unfortunately, um, I did what I usually did. I tried to take control. I simply tried to change course 
uh, and I left academic medicine and I thought came here because of a private practice opportunity. And that's what brought me to Memphis in 1990. And once again, my life was pretty much smooth cruising. Uh, but then a few years later, our older child, our son Chris, made some mistakes and got in some trouble. Uh, the events weren't catastrophic, but they were overwhelming for me. Because once again, here was somebody that I loved, and even worse, somebody that I thought I was supposed to be in control of, and I realized that I was absolutely powerless to, to help him. Well, fortunately, through the providence of God, at about the same time, our younger child, Megan, and, and again, we'd been attending another church in town ever since we moved here in 90, found the youth program at Grace through some friends at Houston High School. And I could see in a short period of time that that child had a relationship with God that I knew that I did not have. And so almost out of curiosity, uh, my wife and I started attending Grace. And then every week I would hear from the pulpit things that I'd never heard before or at least would never have let myself hear before. And most weeks I would be in near tears and some weeks, frankly, in tears, uh, partly tears of joy, realizing that there was this God who loved me so much and was so gracious that he would forgive me my sins, but also, uh, quite frankly, tears of shame. Because all my life I had envisioned myself as not only a guy in control, but someone who was open-minded, reasonably intelligent, not rocket scientist material, don't get me wrong, uh, and humble, only to find out that I was closed-minded, ignorant, and arrogant. But God had been patient for me for 48 years, and so he gave me another full year of sitting here before I finally accepted him uh, early in 1999. It producing change. I could give you a list of 40 such people like that that I know and, and get the privilege of watching the gospel change them. One final point, and I'm finished. The title of my message is 300 Fools. There's another text that talks about fools in the Psalms. It's Psalm 14.1. And it says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Oh, my friend, if you are here today and outside the household of faith, the Bible calls you a fool. Not the kind I am, but the kind that would ever dream of facing eternity without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Take him now. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will continue to change us all by the glorious power of the gospel. I pray, Father that more and more people will see in us such marvelous works of grace to which they attribute not, on, not to us, but to our Heavenly Father who has taken up residence within us in the power of the Holy Spirit and made us different people completely and entirely. I pray, O oh God, for the people who are here today who have not yet met our Savior, might they not leave this room before they have come face to face with Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.